Welcome to Don't Box Me In, the show that features conversations with people from all walks of life, talking about their extraordinary experiences and inspirational messages. Now, here's your host, Lana Reed. Well, hello, hello, hello. Like they said, I'm Lana Reed, and welcome back to this week's edition of Don't Box Me In. The topic today is motherhood, perfection, and cerebral palsy. Now, uh, cerebral palsy is a motor disability, and it is the most common of all childhood disabilities, affecting approximately three live births out of every thousand in the United States. My guest today, Renee Stillman, is a professional speaker, radio host, writer, and mother of six children. God bless her, God bless her. A veteran of the U.S. Navy where she has served a, as a photographer, her love of visual art led her to a quasi-career in an interior design until the call of her true occupation, motherhood, demanded her full attention. Now, Renee has a book out titled Heaven Sent and Bent, Becoming a Mother of Strength, in which she shares her own journey of motherhood and personal growth. And I'm so thankful Renee has made time to sit down and talk with me today. And I extend her a very, very big welcome. Renee, welcome to Don't Box Me In. Oh, thank you. It is my honor to be here this morning with you. Oh, thank you. Thank you for your time. Now, you know, as I said um, in the introduction there, you are the mother of six children, and I think I read 11 grandchildren. Is that correct? Uh, no, I have 13 grandchildren now. Ooh, ooh, wait, 13. So six yeah. children and 13 grandchildren. Congratulations, first of all. Uh, but I want to know, life before Renee became a mother and a grandmother, what were you, and you were footloose and fancy free, what was life for you like then? What were you doing with yourself? You know, I was really uh, on my way to becoming a flight attendant because, yeah, traveling is what I love to do. I love to, you know, experience different cultures and see the world. And so I thought, what a great course. This was in the early 70s. So that's when being a flight attendant was so romantic. Uh And uh, and so I had envisioned that fabulous flight attendant uniform and traveling and, uh, you know, from a, a small town outside of Chicago, this sounded like, you know, the best thing in the world for me to do. So that that's what my plan was. <laughs> and then you met a man. And then I met a handsome guy. <laughs> messed everything up. <laughs> Uh, I'm pretty sure there's no complaints. So how long ago did you meet this wonderful man that kind of altered the course of your life? Well, almost 42 years ago. Awesome. Congratulations. Congratulations. Yeah. Awesome. So, you know, you uh, you settle down into marriage, and, and uh, most of us as women, we have these very idyllic, uh, romantic visions of what marriage was going to be like. So um, you assume that you guys are going to, you know, ride off into the sunset, the white picket fence, and, you know, have this wonderful situation, or, you know, what was your concepts of marriage and motherhood before you started this journey? Well, you know, being a mother really was ha- the highest priority for me. Okay. Uh, okay. But I, but I hadn't, I didn't date a lot in high school. I didn't have a true love, and okay. Okay. so my plan was to just go on with life. And so I, I, I did, and then I met my husband. And so my, my true calling, which I really felt, because I, I love babies, and I babysat all the time, and even though I was the only girl in a very small family, I have an older brother and a younger brother. I really love children and I played with my dolls and I really wanted to get married and have 12 children someday. Oh, and God. so my husband and I got married and I was like, let's go. Let's get, <laughs> let's get this here. <laughs> let's get started. That's right. And, uh, you know, and he's just one of these guys that rolls with the punches. So it's like, okay. Oh. But, you know, it took me a while. It, I actually, um, didn't conceive for a little over a year after we got married and I was really starting to get nervous because I had had some uh, medical issues when I was in the Navy and I was just confident that they had messed up my fertility, uh, even though the doctors had promised me that that wasn't true. So when I finally did conceive, I was just in seventh heaven and I read every book and I was as natural as you can be back in 76 and uh, was determined to have a natural childbirth, which I did and really tried, you know, to feed him properly. And that was the story. And I was just convinced that I was in control, that as long as you do everything that the magazines tell you to do, that you are going to not be one of the people that has any kind of issues or problems with you know, children in any way. 
Mm-hmm. So I was definitely blind to that realization of life. <laughs> and uh, so we had, you know, we had our five and then we, I was pregnant with our sixth and I was starting to kind of go, this is a lot of work. And, and my oldest child was only nine and a half when our sixth one was born. And I, I had to look at this handsome little boy and go, this is a lot for you. You got, you know, this is a lot to expect out of a, a, of the other children, you know, when mommy has morning sickness and things. So we had kind of already decided that maybe number six would be our last, but that we hadn't made up our minds for sure. But the decision was really made for us when our sixth child was born and it was a difficult birth. It was not the natural childbirth that I was used to and complications began in our whole life. Okay. Now, share, share, share that with us. Like your sixth child, you know, that was the, the blessing that actually ended up coming into your life um, and this journey for you. Uh, when, did, when did you realize, TJ, that's your sixth son's name, uh, when did yeah. you realize that there was some complications and that he was a very special child? Well, it's interesting because the doctor that I was going to was a general practitioner. It wasn't an OBGYN. But the reason I was, was going to him was because he was one of the few doctors in the early 80s that was willing to do natural childbirths. Um, he wasn't in a rush to do episiotomies. And, and so I went to him because I liked his philosophy. And he had actually delivered my uh, fourth and fifth child. So I, I trusted him and I liked him and I felt comfortable with him. But I thought it was very odd that um, I said to him, because this uh, TJ was due in December, right around Christmas. And so I said to him, you don't have any plans of traveling for Christmas or anything, do you? And he was like, no, no, well, I, I'm not going to be going anywhere, but I want you to see my associate just in case. So when my water broke and I went into labor, I asked where he was, where is the doctor? Why, have, why haven't we called the doctor? And the room went silent and they said to me, oh, did you not know that his medical license had been restricted and he was no longer able to do labor and delivery, but only prenatal? And I was like, "Uh, no, had not been told that. And when I was at one of my checkups, he did say to me, you are measuring really large. Would you like to have an ultrasound? And of course, being, you know, as women, of course, we're always very polite and we don't want to overstep seniority or and so I said oh well whatever what what do you think and he was like well we'll just keep an eye on you but looking back I found out afterwards that uh, having a large amount of amniotic fluid is always a sign that there is a problem and my measuring large was a sign that there was an issue so there should have been steps taken to know ahead of time that um, things were going wrong so he was an emergency cesarean, not my M.O., and, uh, and then when he was born, he had what they call a diaphragmatic hernia. So he had a hole in his diaphragm, and that caused other issues. So he spent a month up at Oregon State Health University. Okay. So this month in Oregon State University, what, what are the doctors telling you? What are they, in those beginning stages, what are they giving you indication that his life is going to be like, or, or you, you guys as a family, your life is going to be like? Well, they were very hesitant, of course, because they were dealing with the breathing issues. That was their main concern. Because okay, okay. His, he had a hole in his diaphragm, his intestines were had slipped through the hole, and they were laying up in the chest cavity, and they were taking up the space that the lungs needed to grow. So one of his lungs was developed, but the other lung had been crowded and it was a tiny little lung bud. And so their issue was to get his lungs healed, to make sure that he was breathing correctly. And so that's where the surgery came in. Everything was put back where it was supposed to be. The hole was closed up. And so their concern was, let's make sure that we don't have any respiratory issues. And it wasn't until we were about to bring him home that they did an EEG and they checked to see and sure enough they had they saw brain damage and mm-hmm. they warned us that he was at a very high risk of having cerebral palsy and just to watch him keep an eye on him and uh, they don't know they 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 really couldn't say uh, diaphragmatic hernias are usually either kind of black and white either they die or they get better and there's no problems and back in the 80s. He was born in 1985, 
Um, it was very, um, it was kind of a, a terminal diagnosis. And, but we just happened to be in the area of the country where we had two of the, um, most specialized people in diaphragmatic hernias up at Oregon Health Science. And so they were able to do the surgery, correct that problem, but the oxygen deprivation had already caused brain damage. Just, just curious, did you have any follow-up or any meetings with the uh, doctor that you expected to deliver your child after? No, you know, we never did, and there was a time when <laughs> TJ was about probably two, and my oldest son was a handful. He was a busy little boy, and I was just going crazy with these six kids, with, with my oldest one being a handful and my, my youngest one being in my hands all the time. And I was like, I'm done with this. I'm still with somebody. I'm and I called a, a lawyer and I was like, I'm suing that doctor. And they were like, well, honey, you know what? You know, time passed and it's a little too late for that. But I did find out that he had been sued numerous okay. times and that's why his license had been revoked. But, you know, it was just a bad day. And, and I, I did have a doctor say to me one time, I had my oldest in for an evaluation uh, for attention deficit hyperactive disorder. <laughs> very uh, common these days. Very common these days. Yeah. And he said to me, have you considered getting some help? You know, and I said, I have considered a lot of things. Uh, I would like to have a cook. I would like to have a housekeeper and a nanny. I've considered all of those things, but your point is what? You know, <laughs> duh. But anyway, so it was, it was a challenge, but you know, I don't think even after the diagnosis of, of uh, cerebral palsy, I don't think I even understood how it would affect. I didn't realize that this would be still going on. 31 years later, I just thought he would get better somehow and that he would perhaps have a slight learning disability or a, you know, I, I was a little falsely optimistic, I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, as a mother, we, we, we do that. So they they send you guys home after his 30 day stay in the hospital and telling you to keep your eye on the lookout for um, cerebral palsy. But when did you actually get that diagnosis for him? Well, he was actually almost eight months old. He okay. was really tiny and having just struggling. We were just struggling to feed him. He cried all the time. He threw up, um, just all kinds of horrible issues. And I finally, because I had that, that word, you know, cerebral palsy was in the back of my head, I called the United Cerebral Palsy Organization here in Portland and asked them to send me some literature, and they did. And I, on uh, one of the things that they enclosed was a list of doctors in the Portland area who were professionals. And I found one of those doctors at Good Samaritan Hospital here in Portland and made an appointment and took him and he did an evaluation. And sadly, he looked at him the minute we walked into his office and said, well, it's obvious he has cerebral palsy. I could tell you that by looking at him. And But let me evaluate him and see to what degree this has affected him. And so it made me wonder about the um, OBGYN and the pediatrician that we had been referred to that he had been seeing for eight months, uh, who was just looking past all of this and addressing you know, the, the t you hear this story from mothers of children that have issues all the time. And they'll like they would I would go to a, an appointment. And they would plop down a growth chart and they would say, you know, he's not growing. He's not you know, he's not reaching his milestones. And I'm like, you think <laughs> yeah, I know that's I've why got I five of the kids here. I know how this goes. OK, and, you know, and they just would kind of like, well, you need to feed him. And I'm like, I'd love to. He would he would like to swallow. Let's talk about that, you know. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, it was frustrating, but it's not an, a unique story, unfortunately. Okay, okay. Renee, uh, stay with me. We're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back right after this. Welcome back to Don't Box Me In. Here's your host, Lana Reed. 
Welcome back. Welcome back. Don't box me in. Like they said, I am Mata Reed, and today I'm hanging out with the author of the book Heaven Sent and Bent, Becoming a Mother of Strength, Miss Renee, Mrs. Renee Stillman. And uh, before we went to commercial, uh, we were talking about the uh, birth of her sixth child, her son TJ. And uh, you were telling me that it was about eight months when you got his diagnosis. So when you you get this diagnosis, the doctor gives you all this information, I'm sure, and they tell you, okay, you know, from this point forward, you know, you need to do this and you need to do this. So wh- what does that look like as parents? What do you what do you go home with your child and say, okay, our life is now like this? Well, I'll tell you, it was actually such a relief. And, and you will you will hear that also from other families that once once you get a label, that enables you to get the help that you need. And and uh, this particular doctor's office, you know, of course, right away, you are put in touch with uh, the services that you need. And so we were able to, the first thing, the first uh, people we met with were speech therapists. And they addressed and evaluated his eating and his sucking and his swallowing. And they came back and right away they said, you know, he's sucking incorrectly and then he's sucking too many times before he swallows. So what we need to do is thicken up his formula and that way he can get it, it goes in slower and he won't be gagging and choking and throwing up. And, and right away, it was like perfect, instant relief. And we were able to start getting food down him. And uh, we didn't realize, and I don't know why, I should have known, um, that he was a dairy intolerant because I am and my other children, you know, a couple of my other kids are. So we had a little issue with um, giving him formula until we found out that he was allergic to dairy. And so we had to switch to a soy formula. But... Once we could thicken it up a little bit, he was able to start eating, and so then his crying resolved, and and so it was just a step by step process. They put us right in charge of, uh, right in touch with physical therapy people. He started having physical therapy right away. Eventually, they were able to put us in touch with when when he got big enough to where a stroller and a car seat didn't work, and we actually had to purchase a wheelchair. They're the ones that helped us do that. So. Once you get a label, you are put in charge, you know, and plus a lot of this was up at Oregon Health Science. So we were just really connected once we got the diagnosis. Now, how how old is TJ now? He will be 31 this year. Okay, cool. Now, there's a, as a parent, you know, you've spent 31 years with TJ now. And, you know, we as, as humans, sometimes we're not, too kind, you know, um, and some of it is ignorance, you know, we've just not been exposed to it. Um, what, as a parent for the last 31 years who have lived with cerebral palsy, what kind of things would you like the general population to know when it comes to the special needs? You know, that's a hard one because we are fortunate in a way that our son's disability is very obvious. And so we have encountered nothing but kindness in people because it's very obvious he is not only in a wheelchair, but his whole entire body is affected. And and it it just it's very obvious that he has a disability. So people have, you know, like I told my husband, I can walk down the most dangerous area of any city with dollar bills tied to (laughs) my body and people would open doors for me and, you know, do what they can. People are just so kind. Um, I have had strange <laughs> situations where people have come up and said, you know, I'm in the middle of the grocery store and someone will come up and say, um, can I pray for you? And I'll say, yes, that would be wonderful. And then they start to pray. And I was like, oh, I didn't know you meant right here, right now. <laughs> go for it, you know. Um, I have had mothers out of the kindness of their heart bring their children to us and, and try to introduce TJ to their children, you know, making it a teaching moment for their children. And most of the time I'm like, oh, yes, hi, little Tommy. You know, <laughs> other times where I'm like, really, I do you see this cart full of food here? I, this is not a teaching moment for me. You know, um, most of the time it's no big deal. But there are days, you know, when I'm having a, a rough day where I'm like, get out of my way. You know, yeah. so that's just typical, you know. Uh, result of being tired or overworked or or just having a bad day. But oh most God, of the time, people have been kind. And, you know, he attended the public schools from the time he was five years old. And people, like I said, were always so kind to him. But I, because he was in a, he was in, in an inclusion program until he got to middle school. And then 
the more that the children are separated into individual classes, and then once they get into high school where everything is more like a selection process as far as classes go, you know, you don't have that one first grade class with Mrs. Jones. Okay, you have okay. five different classes, history, English, math, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, then they bring them into a resource room, and he's more separated and, and put into a classroom of kids with all kinds of disabilities. And I observed and saw mothers who were struggling with getting their children the help that they needed or getting their children the services that they needed or the, the um, a little bit of bullying going on at the schools. If there, there was um, a child who was uh, a big kid and he just had some uh, challenge, you know, um, developmental disabilities and, and there was some bullying going on, but we never experienced that because I think it was so obvious that TJ was helpless and that he was severely disabled. And I don't think it hurt that he had siblings in the school with him and they made him a part of their gang and their crowd. And so my, my children's friends were his friends as well. And uh, they have, we were sitting around talking the other day and, and I, I asked them, tell me some stories that you guys, you know, things that you did with your friends when you had TJ and then they started telling me stories and I was like, and don't tell me anymore. <laughs> I don't think I want to know about that little drive took with them. <laughs> it was like, that was scary. But you know, his brother, you know how brothers are. Yeah. Not <laughs> the night we took TJ for a drive. And I was like, no, I don't want to know. <laughs> That's enough. I don't want to know anymore. Now I'm curious, you know, listening to, you know, um, you talk about TJ and he was in the public school system and everything. I'm wondering, for me personally, I, I'm thinking as a mother, there would be this like internal struggle for me to be overly protective, overly motherly, overly nurturing, you know, very, but at the same time, not wanting to coddle my child because, you know, I, I do want them to learn whatever sense of independence, you know, that they can learn. Was that a balance that you had to kind of grow into? You know, it was. And and there was a time when there was a an aide that was working in the school system. And I just had my questions about her abilities. And I, I didn't like some of the things that she uh, said and some of the, way she, the ways that she treated our son. Uh-huh. And I actually went to the school and requested that she not be assigned to him as an aide in his classroom. And they kind of hemmed and hawed and made it sound like there wasn't really anything they could do and that, you know, the days changed and schedules changed and whatnot. But there came a day when he came home from school and his arms had been tied to the chair, to the arms of his wheelchair. And I lost it. <laughs> I called up the school and I said, I will get a restraining order. I will sue you. I will too. I mean, you know, typical mom bear. If you let this person anywhere near my son again, you know. And um, so it took that to get, and she was not let go. She was continued to work in the school system, but she wasn't allowed to be anywhere near, you know, my son. Um, that was the, everybody else that worked with him. They were so loving and so kind. And I never, ever worried about him. The only thing that was really hard was, um, we were fortunate enough to have five siblings. So I had built in babysitters. So I didn't have to worry about outside people, um, too much, but there came a time when we were introduced to the Kiwanis camp that is available here. And Kiwanis is an amazing organization and they have a special needs camp that they run every summer. It goes all, all summer long. And the students that, that work at the camp, the counselors that work at the camp are students at Portland State University. And part of their requirement for graduation is community service. And working at the Kiwanis camp is a way for them to fulfill that requirement. So, uh, and so people told me about this camp and I was like, well, you know, he, he doesn't communicate. I would have no way of knowing if he was being abused or neglected or, and so I put it off and put it off and finally they convinced me, no, no, it's great. The people are wonderful. And so we signed him up and, and he had a ball and he went for about five years. Um, but it is a concern. It is a concern. And, um, 
it, it is something where you do have to do your due diligence and you do have to vet people and make sure that they are who they say they are. And we have had some caregivers that have been in our home that were through an agency. And, you know, you have to trust your gut. And I remember one time walking out the door and getting in my car and then getting out of my car and walking back in the house and saying to the, the caregiver, you know what? I'm good. I don't think I'm today. And there was nothing, there was nothing that I could put my finger on, but I just could tell by, by TJ's mannerisms that he wasn't happy and I just didn't feel good about this person. So, um, you know, you have to learn to trust your gut and then you have to learn to ruffle some feathers. And that's really what my book is about is being strong, but kind and, and not a pain in the neck. <laughs> you know, sometimes moms can be a pain in the neck and we have to sit back and go, okay, wait a minute. We have to, you know, it's not the world's problem that I have a child with a disability. Um, it, it is the world's responsibility to be kind and generous and, you know, supportive, but, they don't have to bend to my needs all the time. Uh, sometimes life is just the way it is. And, you know, it, it's hard and we all don't get everything. So that's that's my kind of my message. True, true. Now, I'm just curious because you were talking uh, about uh, sending TJ to camp. Uh, does TJ have, uh, has he developed a communication style with you to be able to convey to you like, Mom, come on, let me go. Come on, let me go. <laughs> has well, he? It is like when you have, you know, when you, as a mother, when you have your infant and they don't really have the ability to form words yet, but you totally get it. Okay. They, they look at you. They, they, uh, they might be a little, um, lucid one day. They might be a little bit ashen, you know, their skin color. You yeah. just know your child and his verbal ability is pretty much on a, 18 month old level, mama, dada, bye-bye, more, done, all done. Um, those are really the only words that he can say. Um, but you just know from his actions that he's happy or he's sad, his eyes, his facial, you know, he understood exactly what you just said. <laughs> he laughs. The tone in his voice is correct. So, you know, he gets it. Um, and he is, uh, but you know, sometimes he, Sometimes there's a little bit of parroting, you know, he will repeat what's been said and okay. it's not correct. You know, like I'll ask him a question he'll say, yeah. And I'll say, no, 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 that's not what you meant. You, you know, so you have to have that conversation, but we, he doesn't, he isn't able to tell us really what's going on in his brain or, you know, but we try to just read him as well as we can. All right. We're going to take another break, and we'll be back right after this. Let's return to Don't Box Me In with your host, Lana Reed. Welcome back. Welcome back to Don't Box Me In. I'm your host, Lana Reed, and today my guest is Renee Stillman. She's got a wonderful book out called Heaven Sent and Bent, Becoming a Mother of Strength. Now, Renee, um, Heaven Sent and Bent, what does that mean? Well, uh, there's a lot of different meanings that you can throw on to that. I think probably originally what my thought was that he is a blessing to our family. He has taught us so much, um, but his existence and his place in our family made us go in a different direction than we thought that it would be. Um, it turned our trail and we had to take a different fork in the road. So there's that meaning his body is bent and twisted and turned. And so it has that connotation. It, uh, it really, you can kind of, it, it also, I kind of also always laughingly say, you know, there's that saying heaven sent and hell bent. Yes. And I and so sometimes I think, you know, when you have a child that has a disability, you are doggone determined you're going to get the help that you need for them. And so there's that connotation. Uh, it has a lot of different meanings. A lot. Uh, we could we could analogize ourselves to death with that one. But it's a it's a full uh, a full sentence for sure. 
Now, you know, in the book you talk about um, societal expectations that, you know, this whole motherhood thing and, and it's supposed to be perfect. And um, I think I, I, I was reading a little blurb about, you know, you have this vision of, you know, walking out in your, you know, your four-inch hills or something like that and holding the baby perfectly or whatever, but the reality of, of motherhood. Um, do you Did you struggle with this concept of being perfect when you had the first one and the second one and the third one? Well, you know what's ironic? As, again, once I said, my, my youngest son's disability is obvious. Mm-hmm. And so we received nothing but care and concern and love and, and uh, empathy for everything that we do for him. But our oldest son has a lot of issues, but it's not physically obvious. He's a very tall, handsome young man. And so we were judged more as parents for his behavior then, of course, we are for our son's behavior. Everyone realizes that uh, TJ's disabilities have nothing to do with anything that we did. But my other children's behavior somehow would be linked back to us as parents. And that's a, a message that I like to tell my audiences that, you know, we all have our own free agency. We all come with our own personality and we're all wired and you can be whatever the world says a perfect parent should be. And your children are going to make good choices and they're going to make bad choices. And someone said to me one time, if we take credit for their good choices, we have to take credit for their bad choices. So I don't take credit for anything. <laughs> I, I, they're all their own little humans and we, I let them be who they are. And so that was the biggest learning that I that I had to realize was that being a parent is really hard and we can only do the best we can be. And mothers get blamed a lot for things that go on. <laughs> and daddies don't always seem to get, daddies are always kind of given that, oh, well, they did the best they can. Hard. <laughs> Dads are just kind of floating around like, ah, I was just there for the whole 18 years. I don't know how you got to be there. I was just, I was just there. <laughs> and they can be totally absent from it, from it, from the scene. But somehow grandfathers are like, they're the best. And I'm like, where's grandma? Grandma's <laughs> the one that just put on this whole spread, people. <laughs> but, uh, no complaining. But it is, you know, being a mother is a very hard job. Decisions that we make can always be scrutinized. And uh, it's a tough job. I'm curious, um, you know, listening to the whole story and just kind of reflecting, how – how is it that do you balance five children that, well, don't have physical needs or special needs, and then TJ comes along? I mean, how do you, you know, balance all of that out with the well, kids? You know, it's funny because my, my daughters, I have two daughters, and they each have four children. And we always laugh that actually the more kids you have, the easier it is. <laughs> They become each other's playmates. Okay. And when my, my oldest daughter lived overseas for a long time, and there would be mothers of single children, and they would beg her, please let me take you know her daughter home. Please let her son come over. My son would love to play with your son. My, I would love to set up a play date. And my daughter was always like, no, I've got, <laughs> you know, I'm not sharing my playmates, you know. <laughs> My kids play with each other, and that gives me the ability to get the things done that I need to get done. So I always said, you know, we never had to bring friends along on vacation. We always had the built-in friends, and we always had somebody for them to play with in the back in the playroom. And so I really think it's easier to have, you know, at least two children than it is to have just one. And even even as my, my daughters that have four children, her older two, you know, are in school and then her younger two, and I'll say, well, let me take so-and-so for the day. And she'll say, heck no, what would I do with the other one if I <laughs> you took that one, you know? So I think it's one of those wonderful things that families kind of become their own best friends. Uh, I think I saw one of those memes on Facebook, and it was a mother. She was talking to her son, and, she, and you know he was trying to get her attention. And she's like, go play with your brother. That's why we had him. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Definitely come in handy for sure. Look, yeah. I'm busy. Go play yeah. with your brother. <laughs> and, you know, it is true. It, I had a nurse one time say to me, in, very seriously, and she said, do, do you really think you gave your kids all the attention they deserved? And I was like, probably not, probably not. you know, 
Um, I, I would love, sometimes I look and I think, boy, you know, if we would have only had two children, of course, I would like to pick which two those were, (laughs) you know, if I had two children, oh, maybe we could have traveled with them and thrown them on the airplane and backpacked through Europe and all the wonderful things, you know, you can get a four passenger car, you get a three bedroom house. I mean, it's a heck of a lot easier to only have two children in a lot of ways. But when, you know, when all 35 of us get together, it is, we have our own little parade. It's hilarious. 35. There's now 35 Stillman offspring running around here? Well, you know, by the time we get the six kids and then they each have a spouse and then we get the 13 grandkids and we throw a couple grandmas and grandpas in there and aunts and uncles, we usually have a pretty good crowd around here. And that's every time I'll see something about somebody will set a spread for Thanksgiving and they have a nice little table set up with eight place settings. I'm like, yeah, that's not (laughs) happening over here. We've got a buffet and some paper plates at the other end of the table and that's just we're going to be able to pull off. I know inviting your crew to a birthday party when the kids were little was a chore. Like, okay, wait a minute. We got to get enough birthday cake. We got to get enough, you know, that was an ordeal. Yeah. Every meal has to be some kind of a, a crowd meal, you know, lasagna or spaghetti or something that's, you know, no, no cute little salmon on a plate with a drizzle over it. For sure. <laughs> None of, none of that cute stuff you see in the gourmet magazines or anything exactly. like that. Exactly. Ah, too cute, too cute. So Thanksgiving dinner, you know, you do it big. You guys eat in shifts. How do you make that work at your house? Well, we really do. I mean, we have tried to have some sit-downs, and uh, we'll throw the the tables up, the card tables, and bring the chairs in from the kitchen. But we've kind of – we tried doing that for a while, and we finally just thought, you know what, this is crazy. So we just set everything up buffet-style, and people find a place to sit, and that's really what works best. <laughs> Okay. Okay. I have really tried as a former interior designer, I have tried really hard to have fancy place settings with cute napkin rings and amazing centerpieces. And, you know, by the time the babies have crawled on the table and scarfed everything up or somebody's crying because they want to sit with somebody and, you know, and you're just kind of like, all right, never mind. Uh, just forget it. Yeah. Just get a paper plate and move on. Exactly. <laughs> awesome. So when did you decide to sit down and write Heaven Sent and Bit, Becoming a Mother of Strength? I think really what drew me to this project was my oldest daughter has a four-year-old son that's autistic. Okay. And we often talk about how the fact that she grew up with a brother that was disabled prepared her for this diagnosis. She was not surprised. She real, you know, unlike me who thought that everything in life should be perfect, she realized that everything in life is not perfect and she, you can have things happen that you don't have planned. And so her son's diagnosis, she looked at her brother and said, "Well, if my mom can do it, I can do it." And she was prepared. And so that really made me realize that there are so many things. My oldest uh, daughter, you know, has an autistic son. My second daughter's husband was killed in a car accident when she was pregnant with her second daughter. And who would have ever expected that? We never planned that. You never think that's going to happen to you. And so really I thought back and I thought, boy, you know, she had my second daughter had two little girls that she now had to raise by herself. That's you need to be a mother of strength to do that. My other daughter has a husband who travels all the time with his job and his job is wonderful. It allows her to be a stay at home mom, but she's at home with four kids by herself. You have to be a mother of strength. And so I I realized that I just wanted to get the word out that we have got to be we we cannot be swayed by television shows that tell us that it's not fair or that we deserve a break, or that every mom should have a mani-pedi weekly, and that if you don't, you know, that's really bad. I mean, I was in my 40s before I had my first manicure. You know, so like, who gets manicures when you have a bunch of little kids, you know? That's kind of what the the world is telling mothers now. You've got, you know, reality shows showing mothers yes. back into their size zeros with hairdressers and makeup artists and mani-pedis and fashion-forward clothing, and, you know, I go to some play events and I see these young moms 
decked out to the, I mean, they're still in jeans, but they are fabulous jeans. <laughs> they are fully made up with sunglasses in the exact right location. And I'm kind of like, what the heck? You know? I know, right? I'm like, how did you do that? I remember when mine was small, I was like, thankful I didn't smell like her diaper or something like that. How do you do that? Exactly. Let me check. When did I bathe last? Not that we shouldn't be that way. I mean, we should always present our best self, but it's the expectation that you should that is was worrisome to me that that this was a a normal and that if you weren't all dolled up to the eighth degree, that you weren't normal. And so that really drove my desire to just tell these moms, you know, give yourself a break. Yeah. And we need to lighten up on each other. Yeah. yeah. It's Sink into the reality of it. Be comfortable with the reality of it. And don't put so much pressure on yourself to be this, you know, image of, you know, the perfect mom. Because it's it's really never going to pan out to be that way. So I understand. We're going to take a last commercial break here, Renee. Hang in there with me. We'll be right back right after this. Welcome back to Don't Box Me In. Here's your host, Lana Reed. Hello, hello, hello. Like I said, I'm Lana Reed, and this is Don't Box Me In. Uh, today I'm hanging out with the author of the book, Heaven Sent and Bent, Becoming a Mother of Strength, Miss Renee Stillman. Now, Renee, you um, have an awesome, awesome, amazing, amazing foundation called the Stillman Family Foundation. Uh, what made you guys decide to start that? Well, I'll tell you. It is absolutely amazing how much a wheelchair-accessible vehicle costs. And our son was 13 before our family could afford to get a wheelchair-accessible van. And we decided right then that if there ever came a time in our life that we could help other families to get a vehicle um, that would allow their family to travel, to be together, to go to functions, to go to parties, to go to the park, just to be active in the community, that we would like to be able to do that. And so when my husband retired, we decided, okay, now is the time. And so we formed the foundation. And the mission of the foundation is to provide wheelchair-accessible vans for families of children in wheelchairs. And we understand that there's a lot of different disabilities out there, and there are adults that need wheelchair-accessible vans. And But we really want to focus on families with children so that the the child that's in a wheelchair can be included with the other siblings or other family members so that the whole family can be together. And, you know, an average car, an average Ford or or Toyota van is about 38,000, a new one, about 38,000. But by the time you add the modifications that need to be made, you're looking at a $60,000 car. Wow. There's not a lot of families. They've already got medical costs. They've already got equipment that they're having to buy for their children and then tell them that they have to buy a $60,000 car. And it's just not possible. So usually a lot of the families will try to get a used car. And there are some used cars out there that you can get something for twenty five, thirty five thousand. But, um, you know, cars don't last as long as they used to in the old days. You know, grandpa doesn't take the car into the garage and work on the carburetor and fine tune things. And everything's done by computer. And so cars, you know, last about 10 years and they start to have issues. And if you've got modifications made, then the car could be fine. But the modifications start to break down. You know, everything's electric and doors are all electric and things are run by remote and ramps go down and go back up again. So if we can give a family a brand new car, that's our ideal mission. But if we can also just help financially for them with a, a, um, an allotted amount of money that they can get a used vehicle, we're good with that as well. Okay. Now, you said it was about 11 before you guys actually got your wheelchair accessible vehicle. So... What does that look like before? Because 11, you know, kids are kind of getting up there in size or whatever. How how did we get about town to go to the store or whatever before we had this wheelchair accessible vehicle? Well, exactly. That, that was <laughs> what we did before was, you know, when he was when he was small uh, and he's always been small for his age, just because, you know, when you're malnourished, you're, you're not going to grow, which is what he struggled with for the first three years of his life. But then even just having cerebral palsy. 
Um, most people that have cerebral palsy, you'll notice, are very thin. And if they have the spastic form of cerebral palsy, it's because their muscles are always tight. They're always burning calories. And so they can, you know, my, my, my son always used to look at my uh, TJ's arms and go, dude, you've got some fabulous biceps going on there. You know? <laughs> and, uh, but he's burning a lot of calories just sitting in his wheelchair. So I used to put him, take him out of his wheelchair, put him in his car seat, then pick up the wheelchair, put it in the back of the car. But that's when he was little and his wheelchair was little. And so then when he got older, he didn't fit into a car seat any longer. Then we would just put him in a regular seat, strap him in, and then pack him with pillows and then, you know, try to lift the wheelchair. And that's when he was about 13. I just got to the point where I said, I can't do this. I can't pick up his wheelchair. And, you know, we live in the Pacific Northwest. It's rainy. So by the time I've got him packed in his car and I've lifted his chair in the back of the car, everybody's soaked. And it, so you find yourself being stuck home. Is it a nice day? Where can we go? And so I remember when we first got our van, and he and I stopped off at a, a restaurant to have lunch. And I said to him, okay, there's a family over there. Let's time how long it takes for them to get their car with their kids in car seats and how long it takes for me to get you in your brand new car. And, and, you know, and I just pushed that little button. The door came open. The ramp came down. I slid his wheelchair in there. It locked into the ramp lock. And, you know, clicked his seatbelt and was like, ta-da, <laughs> best day of our life. And so, I mean, just knowing that and then all of a sudden we're able to go to brothers football games and, and family reunions and, you know, attending things was no big deal. And you've got, you know, just that my next issue is parking. Parking is still an issue, but we'll talk about that on another show. <laughs> too um, cute, too cute. But, yeah. uh, I was uh, Renee, I was on the website and I saw this cute, cute picture of you and TJ, um, and you had your Halloween costumes on. So you guys have some sort of event or a, a program or something for Halloween at the Stillman Foundation? Well, we do. Our first annual auction, uh, we're hoping it, that it will be our largest fundraising event, is going to be held October 22nd uh, in Portland, and it's called Witches Night Out. And it's going to be an opportunity for women to get all dressed up in their best, best witches attire uh. and party with other women and uh, shop. And there'll be a, a fashion show and just, you know, lots of fun, fun things to do. And Halloween is really my favorite holiday. I'll take Halloween over every other holiday. <laughs> and TJ has always been a kick in the head fun to decorate because from the time he was little, I would uh, wrap him up in bandages, put him in his wheelchair, throw some fake blood on him, put him out in front with uh, the thing of candy. And then I would sit there dressed up like a, a mortician or some oh. kind of scary doctor. And the kids would come up to the door and they'd be like, oh, is he real? <laughs> and they're, you know, they're like, what? Scared. Oh, we'd laugh and it was so fun. So yeah, he is always part of our family's um, costumes and we always try to find a theme of some kind that we can include him in. And uh, one year I dressed him up like um, President Truman. Mm -hmm. I had an antique wheelchair and I put him in and then I dressed up like a nurse. And I mean, we just always try to include him. He's one of the Wizard of Oz characters or or he's uh, Frankenstein and the rest of us are the bride of Frankenstein and the werewolf. And so we always pick a theme and he is always included for sure. Precious, precious. And he doesn't get to decide. That's the best. <laughs> he's got no say, so he just has to go. It's like having a whole bunch of big brothers are like, oh, gosh, what are they going to do to me now? <laughs> right, right. But no, so, also, uh, the foundation also has a 5K run coming up August 13th, and okay. we're encouraging people to come out, you know, with wheels of some kind, roller skates or bicycle or wheelchairs, and just participate in a fun 5K that's, very uh, um, wheelchair friendly and flat and just really make it more of a just a fun day. So those are the two fundraising events we have coming up for the foundation. And then we're always, of course, looking for just donations because, okay. um, you know, as we've watched the political campaign, everyone realizes that twenty seven dollars, you can be up to the millions in a very yeah, short amount of time. So if people get on the website, which is org 
and just make a small donation, everything adds up. And, you know, we're hoping to be able to provide vehicles for families, not just in the Pacific Northwest, but throughout the nation. Okay. So right now, though, the Stillman uh, Family Foundation is basically in Washington and Oregon? Uh-huh, yep. Okay. Okay. And one more thing real, real quick. You guys offer scholarships as well. Well, we do. We, we offer a scholarship to uh, participants from Tualatin High School. Uh, okay. Tualatin, Oregon is where my son graduated, and um, they were so kind to him, and he had so many great friends there. And so, you know, that's where we, uh, if you are a graduate of Tualatin High School, we have a scholarship program. Okay. So one more time, uh, how do people connect with you for the foundation and uh, to get involved with some of the events and maybe make a donation? One more time, give us a website. Yep, it's um, Steelman Family, and Steelman is S-T-E-E-L-M-A-N, SteelmanFamilyFoundation.org, and you can buy the book off of there. You can make a donation. You can sign up for the run. You can sign up for to be a volunteer for one of the fundraising events. We can use all kinds of people in different capacities. So, yep, everything can be found. The book is available on Amazon, of course, and it's an easy read. You can download it if you have a Kindle or some kind of reading device, and or you can buy the paperback. And uh, it's, it's something that is really great just to take on an airplane and then pass it along when you're done because two and a half hours later, you're, you're, uh, you're through and you've been inspired. <laughs> now, uh, before I go, I want to ask you, um, being the mother of this phenomenal young man, TJ, what do you think the most important lesson is that he's taught you? Boy, you know what? He has taught me patience, and he has taught me empathy and understanding and definitely brought me home. There, I'm kind of a busy person, and I like to be out there in the world, and there were a lot of times that having him made me center and I really had to re- realize what was important and where I needed to be when I needed to be there. And he made me understand that there are seasons and we all have our seasons. And there's a time to be a um, stay-at-home mom. There's a time to be a grandma. There's a time to be an interior designer. There's a time to be an author. And there's a time to have a foundation. And, you, <laughs> and we are all busy and we all want everything to happen at once. But that's just not how it works. And he taught he taught me that. I don't think I would have learned that without him. Good advice. Thank you. Thank you to DJ. Thank you to TJ. You know, uh, wonderful lessons there. Uh, Renee, we are at the end of the hour. I have had a wonderful time with you today. Uh, my guest has been Renee Stillman. Please stop by, visit her and her gang of 35's website, Stillman yes. Family, StillmanFamilyFoundation.org, S-T-E-E-L, StillmanFamilyFoundation.org. Renee, thanks for hanging out with me today. Oh, thank you so much. I have just had a blast. Likewise, likewise. That is all for this week's show. I'll be back next week at the same time. Until then, remember when it comes to your dreams, the words can't and won't should never slow you down. There's always space to change and to grow. Don't be boxed in. Live your very best life. I'm your host, Lana Reed, and I'll see you all next week.